0: Hello and welcome to San Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I am excited to welcome Nadar Dabit. Nadar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Please just go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, my name is Nadar Dabit. As of this recording, I am working as a senior developer advocate at AWS, and I've been there for a little over three years. And it's an interesting week, actually, for me to be talking to you, because this is also the week that I'm kind of transitioning into a new role, which we'll probably talk about as well in a little bit.
0: Can you give us an overview of your career and you know milestones, how you ended up, what you're doing right now, and what's your main focus?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I started programming around 2012. This was kind of Something I did that was a non-professional career path in the sense that I didn't actually you know, go to school and all that stuff for computer science. I'm a self-taught developer. Started learning how to code and got really interested in it. And from there, I was kind of hooked. So I was living in Mississippi at the time, couldn't find any work here, started looking around the United States, you know, just finding anywhere that would kind of let me get my foot in the door, found a role in LA, moved to LA for a little over a year you know, uh, kind of learned the tricks of the trade and networks and communities and just made a few connections and kind of learned how to code while I was there. Moved back to Mississippi, where I live now. I uh, worked as an engineer for about five or six years as a developer, you know, at a few different companies. Then I started my own consulting company doing React Native. I specialized in React Native for a few years. I wrote my first book called React Native in Action for Manning Publications, Um, Also held the React Native radio podcast for a few years and was kind of really, really deep into that ecosystem for a while before switching it up a little bit and diving into cloud computing and in particular, full stack cloud computing, kind of bridging the gap between front end and back end developers or really mobile and back end, you know, anything client side and back end kind of. You know, focusing on the developers that maybe don't have that back end or that cloud computing background, but they want to build on the cloud. A lot of the stuff that I've done in the past few years and my team has done is actually kind of trying to lower the barrier to entry for those types of developers. So uh, during that time, I've been at AWS for a little over three years, like I mentioned. I started off as a junior developer advocate, kind of moved my way up, and now I lead the developer advocacy team at AWS Frontend Web and Mobile and wrote another book while I was here called Full Stack Serverless, really kind of encompassing everything that I learned over the first couple of years being here, kind of distilling how to build full stack apps using React and AWS. And yeah, that's kind of my story. I've had a lot of ups and downs. I've met a lot of amazing people. I've got to travel the world, speak at events, you know, before COVID and stuff. And I'm kind of excited also about my next step in my career.
0: Hey everyone, Sanford has published an open source book called CI CD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud native apps. Download your free copy today at sanfordci.com. You have seen it from both sides, being in the front end for a number of years and then, yeah, moving to the back end. And as you also described, trying to how do the people build that other side? What can you maybe tell us are the main challenges where people are getting into that, you know, back-end side of the story where they need to support, are front fronted part of their application or their mobile application?
1: There's two things that are part of this conversation. First of all, front-end has become, you know, I would say the ecosystem has become larger and more complex, whereas the tooling has also become better at the same time. So we kind of have this thing where, We're having more complexity but it's also easier to get certain things accomplished versus the way we might have done those in the past that doesn't mean as a front-end developer it's easier to be a front-end developer i think that as we improve the tooling and we improve the developer experience on the front end we're taking on more challenging you know things to do so we're giving ourselves more complex and a higher bar for the user experience for the things that we're building so therefore while we're improving the tooling and we're improving the ecosystem, it hasn't gotten any easier, in my opinion, to be a front-end developer because of all the things that we now have to take into consideration. You know, single-page applications and, you know, dealing with the data architectures and, you know, routing and all these different things. And now we have these hybrid frameworks that mix client-side rendering with server-side rendering and even static-side generation. And you have to understand, you know, quite a bit of things to understand how all this stuff works. So taking that into consideration, how can we actually add more work onto those people and kind of make them more productive without giving them even more things to learn. And that's kind of a big challenge. And I think that's also, while it's a challenge, it's also a huge opportunity because there is a lot of work being done within cloud, but also just companies that are building out abstractions on top of the cloud and managed services that allow you to kind of build out backend functionality that used to be the job of either a single or a team of engineers that were very, very specialized can now be kind of done by someone that maybe isn't so knowledgeable. So for instance, a really good example of these managed services that has been around and a lot of people have probably used it, and it was kind of early on in the innovator in in this area, in my opinion, is Auth0. So Auth0 is like a really easy to use authentication service. Now imagine if you wanted to kind of, you were a front-end developer and you needed to add authentication, Imagine trying to build out something as sophisticated as that and make it scale and actually implement OAuth providers and all that stuff. That would be really tough. But with Auth0, you can just kind of go in, create your app and get the credentials and they even give you code and stuff you can copy. So those sorts of things are what I'm kind of excited about because then as a front end developer, I can actually just reach in and grab these different APIs and these different services. And I don't actually have to understand how they've been implemented on the back end, as long as I can read their documentation, understand the solutions that they're offering, I can actually take advantage of all of that engineering talent, all of that power, all of that complexity that's hidden and kind of build interesting stuff. So all the stuff that I see happening is kind of like for bridging this gap between front end and back end it is kind of falling into that category, managed services, databases as a service. And within AWS, AWS is complex. So for us to try to kind of build out these types of layers on top of traditional cloud is a big challenge. And I think that we've come up with a pretty great approach that hides a lot of that complexity while also giving a lot of power to the developer. We've seen a lot of success. I mean, we've scaled to hundreds of thousands of active developers at this point. And as we grow, we hit more edge cases and more things that we want to improve. So we have a lot of work to do, that's for sure. But where we're headed is a great area. And I think that like a lot of people you know, want this sort of thing. And it's not just AWS. You see, you know, Google has done this with Firebase a long time ago. You know, there's Vercel, there's Netlify, there's uh, Hasura, there's a lot of great companies doing uh, similar things, I would say. Um, I would say the main difference between what AWS is doing is that instead of like building new things within AWS, we're just building this layer on top of AWS. So a lot of startups want to take advantage of the entire power of AWS at some point. But when they're building their MVP, or they're building their prototype, or they're just building out you know, their initial version of their app, they just want to get up and running quickly. And they want to take advantage of all this stuff, but they don't want to kind of spend months and years like learning how AWS works. When you're working with something like Amplify, what we're building is that you're just given the infrastructure as code, and you're given all these backend services. There's nothing new, nothing that you need to really eject out of as far as the services are concerned. So it's kind of like, a layer on top of aws but you can still take advantage of all of aws which is kind of what i think sets it apart from some of these other things that are out there
0: i myself coming from the generation of you know when the SaaS companies were starting 2010 and around that generation where maybe you know github and heroku the um, kind of the gold standard back then was a uh, Rails app, and then you come in and then you generate you know your authentication layer and so on it relies on those primitives like you know your MySQL or Postgres database, and you get a lot of code that was written by some people for you, and then you have to run it and maintain it yourself in this generation of tools that you are talking about one of the big advantages for developers is they don't have to think probably about the scaling of that user base and you know all those accounts and running them and you know watching after memory and CPU and so on, but they delegate that responsibility, which is amazing. So I kind of just acknowledge the difficulties. And I was recently thinking about, okay, if I would start something tomorrow, okay, what would I use? Would I have to build all that by myself? And I was just exploring these areas. I talked with Guillermo for Vercel and he was kind of guiding me through those services. You mentioned Auth0. Okay, so user management authentication, that is solved. What do you see as a first next step after that The developers usually want to solve?
1: After authentication?
0: Yeah. So, I mean,
1: I think the core bread and butter for almost every app is authentication, data, and storage. So you need authentication for user management. You need a data layer, which is essentially a combination of an API and a database. And then you need some type of file storage, typically for images and videos. So I think like if you can cover that really well, you've solved 80% of the problem for 95% of the developers out there. The other 20% is typically going to be the differentiating value that you're going to be bringing in as a company or as a developer. And I think the interesting part about that 20% is that that's kind of where the traditional backend developer is going to shine because they're going to be able to use their skill set instead of repeating the same thing and building these same API endpoints over and over and building the same authentication service. They're going to be able to build out, you know, this differentiating value that can kind of set them apart. Or the other 20% might even be, you know, able to be handled by one of these services as well. It just kind of depends on what you're talking about. So for instance, there's machine learning services that you can buy into without having to kind of build yourself. There's video streaming services. There's all types of stuff. So it kind of depends what you're building. But I would say like that those are kind of more the one-off use cases. What everyone needs though, for the most part, is going to be authentication, data, and storage. And all of those things, yes, are abstracted away with these types of layers that you're seeing out there. And I think that when you're buying into something like Firebase or Amplify, what you get is a little bit more easy to kind of get going with versus piecing other ones together is that they're all typically integrated well together. So like once you have authentication, you need to be able to kind of like authenticate and authorize users at the API layer. When you're working with Amplify or Firebase, you automatically kind of have that piece that's already built in. You don't have to kind of understand how to write that yourself. Whereas if you're kind of going to grab you know, Alt-Zero and then add a data API layer and then a storage layer. You kind of have to understand how to put all that stuff together. It's still really, really powerful. It's just maybe a little bit more work and stuff like that. I think the the main thing to kind of take into consideration for me always when I'm talking about this stuff is the trade-offs. There's always going to be, you know, trade-offs. I don't think there's ever one right way to do something every time. It just kind of depends on a lot of things. It depends on what your existing skill set is. It depends on, you know, what you like to do as far as like which companies provide the APIs that you enjoy working with, you know, what is offered versus what you need, you know, all of these things, I guess you take into consideration and you make a decision. One day it might be one app, it might work for this stack, another app might work for this stack, you know, so on and so forth. At least that's kind of the way I look at it. <laughs>
0: Hey, I'm going to take a quick break here and tell you that Samfor has a new book out called CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes. If you're looking to deploy cloud-native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at samforci.com. And for our listeners who maybe don't have a hands-on experience in these areas, Maybe generation of developers and companies who are working primarily in those stacks where you own everything, okay, from that database all the way up. Can you maybe guide us a bit through a developer experience? Because if I would just imagine running something locally, you know, testing out, clicking around the app, you know, that usual flow, and then eventually you run some tests which are run on your local machine, eventually in the CI, and you deploy. How that developer experience looks like? in terms of what can be done without accessing the AWS, what you can do locally, what you can isolate?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think it depends on what you're building. And I think that one thing to kind of talk about right here is that most of the managed services kind of fall into this category of serverless. And for the most part, traditionally, serverless infrastructure is harder to test than the infrastructure that you own. With that being said, though, I can't speak to maybe some other things like Firebase or other services because I haven't honestly dealt with them in production and used them that much. But with Amplify, I can say that we have taken that into consideration. We do provide a local testing environment for authentication, data, and storage, like I mentioned. So you can basically run a local version of your backend. And you can test on what we basically spin up a local mock GraphQL server. We build out the local instances of your database and we provide a way for you to kind of send mutations, send queries and things like that to your database. And also you can work with S3 locally. And then also you can actually mock a signed in user. So we provide a way to kind of create a user and set up tokens, and maybe even add groups and stuff like that for group-based access. Now, that being said, you're still probably gonna run into certain scenarios where you build out something that's a little more complex that might not be supported by the local testing environment. It's really easy to kind of spin up a copy of your infrastructure, because what you're working with is infrastructure as code. So typically what people do is if they run into a scenario where they can't test locally, they probably do this anyway, is that they just create a fork of their existing environment and then they're able to test this in the cloud. And then whenever they have the changes that they want, you can actually merge just the diff, almost like a diff would be like for uh, GitHub. You can just merge the diff of your infrastructure's code into your main environment. So typically the way the workflow is like, you have a prod environment, you have a dev environment, and then you have a feature environment. So your feature environment gets merged into dev, tested, and then dev gets merged into you know production.
0: But sounds like a reference implementation of those services. Is that part of a local stack? I recently saw a lot of people start using, I think it's local stack slash local stack, like a Docker image, which implements a lot of services.
1: I've actually not even used that yet, but I hear really, really, really great things actually, but no, it's actually our own implementation.
0: And for listeners, local stack seems to be like a Docker image that you run and you specify which services you want to use. And for instance, you have a reference S3 implementation, and then you can only complete isolation, run your test again against that reference implementation. From these experiences and current states of the industry and your career, what do you see as a next step in this area and what's next for you?
1: So in this industry, I mean, I think that if you look at all of the, where the industry seems to be headed and also all of the research and stuff. There's a paper that I always reference. It's called Cloud Programming Simplified, a Berkeley View on Serverless Computing. And this was written in, I think, February of 2019. So I guess it's kind of two years old at this point. But they kind of did this really deep dive research into cloud computing. And the overwhelming result of all this research was kind of a bulleted list of different things. But one of the things that I thought, or two of the things that I thought were most interesting was that in their view that they think all of the cloud industry is headed to this serverless like mindset or serverless implementation. So kind of like, I think serverless, the idea of people building out managed services and backends as a service is going to continue to become a thing. And also they mentioned that they think that in the future, serverless computing will be cheaper than managing your own servers by default. And also that serverless computing will be the default of the cloud versus vice versa. Whereas right now you probably see in production, more people running their own instances and dealing with containers and EC2 and all that stuff. So like, I think that the industry is headed in a direction of serverless, but there's still some problems that need to be solved in this space. Um, And there's still some things like testing that aren't completely fleshed out yet. But I think that we're seeing that move. So like, For instance, you know, one of the big services that AWS offers is RDS, which is kind of like different types of database service that are SQL, like SQL and Postgres and stuff like that. We recently launched Serverless Aurora, which is a serverless version of that. And then we released Serverless Aurora v2, which kind of like improves everything that we had to offer. And that seems to be really, really popular. So I think like what the idea is that there are these services that are out there that are paid services that you have to pay for the infrastructure running, regardless of whether you're using them. A lot of them are moving to this payment model of pay per compute. And I think that makes a lot of sense because like, if we can continue moving everything into that model and you don't have to pay for anything unless you have users, it just changes like the whole dynamic behind running a startup or running a company where you're no longer having to pay for this capital expense. You only have a variable expense. And that variable is the number of users that you have. So if you build out something complex and sophisticated and you don't have any users, you're not going to be paying for that. So you can spend the money where in my opinion is a lot more valuable in developer hours. And then once you get a lot of users, you're going to start paying for that infrastructure and at that point most people are okay with that because then you obviously have something that people are interested in and people want to use and the problem kind of takes care of itself. That's kind of where I see things headed. You know, there's a lot of things that are going to happen between now and the future when that does happen. But like, I think more and more people are taking that approach. But as for me personally, I've been at AWS for three years and three months. And this is kind of like, I would say, the third iteration of my career at this point. Like I started off just being a software engineer. And then I got really, really involved in the React Native space. And I was doing consulting and I wrote a book and I was kind of known in that area a little bit. And then I moved to AWS and now I've been doing full stack cloud computing for a little over three years, focusing on the stuff that I've been talking about here on the show. But I've also been really interested in the decentralized finance space, uh, DeFi, mainly because I have a lot of family and friends and stuff that are affected by some of the government restrictions and financial crises that are happening in places like Lebanon. So for instance, in Lebanon, If you have money in your bank, you literally can only withdraw a few hundred dollars a month. And while this is happening, the inflation is going out of control. So your money is worth 10% or 15% less than what it was the month before over the course of a few years. Actually, over the course of the last 18 months, it's around 1100%. So if you have, you know, $10,000 in the bank, you might now only have $900 of spending power. And this happens all the time. Like, look at Venezuela, Turkey, you know, right now, all over the world. It happens. It's a cycle. It just happens over and over. So to me, the answer is some type of, I would say, worldwide currency that people can easily exchange. And that holds its value against something else other than the US dollar. So I'm really interested in this space. So this is kind of where I'm headed. I'm actually going to be working in the decentralized space, the Web3 space, DeFi, whatever you want to call it, at a company called Edge and Node. And the founders are some really, really, really interesting and dedicated and smart people that have been in this space for a while. I'm kind of inspired by some of the work they've already done, but I'm really inspired about the vision that they have for kind of the future of this space. And it's also going to be a really exciting thing for me to work on because it is new and I also feel like it's impactful. So I'm kind of like going to be joining that company next week, actually. So my first day is Monday (laughs) and it's not really announced either. So like when we're recording this, I haven't told anyone yet. So by the time this comes out, it will be, I guess, known.
0: Great. Great. Well, it was uh, fantastic talking to you about all these generation of things. And we will be around, all of us, seeing what happens with the serverless in the next area, connected to finance (laughs) indirectly. I also recently reviewed, okay, what would it cost to run an application which is doing nothing, you know, has zero users and almost nothing. For instance, I reviewed a root Heroku and to make anything decent, you need to spend $200 on it you know, and you're just starting. And for a lot of people, you know, to start something, that's a lot if you multiply by just a couple of months. So, yeah, I can also relate to that, that, you know, if people can start, you know, from zero when they are making zero (laughs) and then scale their cost over time, it is a game changer for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and imagine if you have multiple different ideas and things that you want to work on at the same time and none of them are really panning out, but you don't want to just, destroy all of that infrastructure. You still want it to be there because you want to maybe play around with it, iterate on it. You could build as many apps as you want. And as long as no one's using them for millions of requests, even even if you have hundreds or even thousands of requests, it's relatively nothing. The real money starts coming at like the millions or tens of millions. And even then, like if you look at DynamoDB or Cognito or all these different services, I think DynamoDB and Lambda, like you can have millions of requests per month and it's going to be like less than $10 or something. Like, you know, For the most part, unless you're doing something really different than what you typically would be doing. But the idea is that, yeah, it is cheaper. It's cheaper unless you kind of have a like, let's say you have 100,000 users and they use the app exactly the same amount of time every day over the course of like 60 days or 90 days. and You can predict that. Like, only then is it probably going to be cheaper to manage your own infrastructure. Like, when you have this idea of exactly what people are going to be doing. But most of us don't know that. And we also want to be able to not have to deal with those types of things. It's one less thing to worry about. We want to be able to spike up when we hit that million users and then scale back down when we only have the thousand users. So, like, serverless does that for you.
0: Yeah. And you can mix and satisfy your needs. If you really want to lower the cost in some area, you can rebuild that part of the app. Once you reach a couple of years down the road that, you know, 100,000 users or what parts of that application can be, you know, moved in a more traditional way. If someone really wants to run some workloads on EC2 instances, they can, obviously. As you said, there are always drawbacks and <laughs> it depends on the situation. Well, thanks, Nether. This was a great overview. Wish you all the best in your next part, third part of your career, as you said. And for the people interested uh, learning more about your previous work, we are going to link to both of your books and from your Twitter account. And I also have to say that there's YouTube account has a lot of valuable content. So we're going to also share that link. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm still going to be like, while I'm moving into this new space, I'm still going to be involved in the community and the uh, cloud and serverless and amplify space so I'm not going anywhere I'm just going to be trying something in addition to that so
0: (laughs) yeah different domain and maybe similar technologies great thanks for sharing that bye
1: cool thank you for having me it was really great to be here and it was a cool discussion